Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Okay, folks, today we're talking about manufacturing drugs in space, which I think is awesome, but I couldn't resist having a little bit of fun with this because NASA files are in the public domain. So you might hear some more iconic moments from our explorations in space and maybe even a clip from Gordon Cooper as he flies overhead. And if you don't know who Gordon Cooper is, I recommend you check out The Right Stuff. You can find it on Amazon Prime. But now... Let's jump into my conversation with Mark Herbert. Mark Herbert is the VP of Biopharma Business Development at Varda Space Industries. And you heard that right. We're talking about space today. Mark, welcome to CC Life Science. Good morning, Chris. Great to talk to you again. So tell me, tell everybody here uh, about Varda and your mission. Yeah, so the main mission at VARDA is, is kind of a, a large, grandiose mission, which you'd expect with me, a pharmaceutical scientist sitting within a space industry uh, organization. So we want to expand the economic bounds of humankind. Um, and the way we want to do that is through the industrialization of LEO, which is low Earth orbit. And primarily, we want to start with pharmaceuticals as the primary focus point through that industrialization point. Yeah. So um, pharmaceuticals manufactured in microgravity, right? Which we're going to get to. That is correct. But first, let's just start off generally. What's unique about or what are the advantages of manufacturing in microgravity? And maybe before we go there, we can kind of go back a bit and, and kind of start of why Varda was founded and why, yeah. you know, today is the time for companies such as Varda to really start to think about industrialization of low Earth orbit. Um, so if you dial the clock back to 2015, a, an invention was made at SpaceX with the, re, the reusable rocket uh, where they had demonstrated that you could launch Falcon 9 go into orbit and then bring that down safely to Earth and reuse that, which greatly reduced the cost to go into low Earth orbit. Uh, from the 1980s, it would cost about $100,000 per kilo to get it up into orbit. Uh, with the invention of the Falcon 9 rocket, that dropped that cost to about $5,000 per kilo. And then there is another generation of rockets that's coming online, the Starship, which will drop that by another tenfold. Um, and so now, if you start to think about industrialization of low Earth orbit, it has now become first and foremost financially feasible. Um, and so then you start to think about in industries that actually can accommodate the current cost structure because it is still fairly expensive. It's not just, you know, going down the road and doing manufacturing or doing solid state studies at a CRO on Earth. You know, you still have to get something up into orbit and back down to Earth. Um, and so that is a, a fairly costly endeavor, um, but it is, you know, dropping in cost as we move uh, forward with time. And there are really three industries that, you know, you can consider starting as the nodal point for that industrialization. And that is semiconductors, fiber optics, and pharmaceutics. Uh, we focused on pharmaceutics because if you do some research and there's been, you know, this, this building industrial revolution that has occurred through research conducted on the International Space Station or the ISS. Um, and that's something that I just became familiar with prior to starting at Varda in November of last year uh, when I got a phone call 
call informing me about Florida Space Industries and the need to hire a pharmaceutical scientist to you know oversee business development, I was immediately intrigued, but also a skeptic because I didn't know much about microgravity. Uh, but after that call, I did a lot of research, and there's been you know 40 years of research conducted on the ISS that has demonstrated that conducting pharmaceutical research in a microgravity environment can give you distinctly different properties when you do those same studies on Earth. And that's primarily because you can just toggle on and off gravity. And by doing so, you remove a lot of the gravity-induced effects that we feel on Earth, which are sedimentation, buoyancy, and then heat-driven convection currents. You take that process into microgravity, you don't have to worry about buoyancy, sedimentation, you don't have to worry about gravity at all, and that you find yourselves in a transport-driven environment, which is a very uh, quiescent type environment, so a calm, quiet environment that is perfectly suited for crystallization of small molecules or biologics. Yeah, so I'm going to test you on the science a little bit. Okay. The convection, which is heat-driven, but eliminated in microgravity or minimized, how does that happen? Yeah, so I think the easiest way to kind of draw an analogy from something we're familiar with today on Earth is through a candle analogy. Um, and I'm not a physicist by any means. I'm a chemist by training, so we'll, we'll take a, a general layman description. Uh, but I think all of us know that our parents warn us that, you know, candles are hot. And if you put your hand above the flame of the candle, you can feel the heat of the candle. But if you put your hand on the side of the flame of the candle, it's not as hot. And that's primarily due to the gravity-induced heat convection currents that are caused by that candle flame. So you can think at the top of the candle flame is the most energetic part of that flame. And so you have a high level of, of entropy occurring. And so that means that the particles in that part of the frame are the least dense. And so that's why, you know, the heat rises. And then the low or the, the dense particles, the oxygen feeds that combustion reaction at the, the source of the flame. And it creates this, this convection current that causes that distinction of the candle that we are, you know, we're near and dear, and we know very familiar with, you know, what we've observed on Earth. If you run that same combustion experiment in ISS, which is not an easy feat to do, you don't want to have an open flame on a, an international space station, uh, but they have done the experiment, and you can see that same candle flame does not have that distinct property that we are used to seeing on Earth. It is a, a uniform blue orb that the heat is... Um, uniformly dissipated, you know, from that that source of the combustion reaction, and doesn't have that same convection current that occurs. Yeah. Okay. So I've seen those pictures, and that makes total sense. I might throw that in the video. Um, so differences in density around the flame just don't matter because density is somewhat irrelevant. There is no, no gravity. There is no there is no density in microgravity. Again, a lot of you know hard concepts to get your head around because you know we have only lived in a gravity you know driven environment, and so you know now we finally have our our first way to access microgravity, and so there is a, a bit of a learning curve to go through to really understand the phenomenon that exists there. This is a new and strange environment at first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. All right, so. Um, Describe the Varda capsule. 
Yeah, so the capsule is very similar to what you envision bringing uh, astronauts back from the ISS. So it's a uh, cylindrical capsule about three feet in diameter. Um, you know, the way we are making our capsules is there will be no humans on board, so no astronauts present within our capsule. It's not large enough to fit a human. Um, and it will be a, a free-flying, fully autonomous satellite. And within that capsule, we will house pharmaceutical hardware. We could do, to start, small molecule uh, crystallization studies, and then we'll slowly expand into biologics over the coming years. Yeah, so not even room for my dog, but um, are you sending it? Depending on the size of your dog. So we can fit about 20 kilos of active material within the capsule. Our full capsule weighs about 300 kilos. Um, but like I said, it's about three feet diameter, um, you know, roughly you know, three feet uh, tall as well, but a, a perfect cylindrical shape. Yeah, okay. Um, so when you start out, I'm just trying to envision like small molecule crystallization. Are there any reactions or mixing that's happening up there or you're, or you're going to send something up, let it sit there and bring it back? You can't, is it that simple? I mean, yeah, somewhere so, in between. Yeah. So if you look at, and again, you know, the first, um, focus of our, um, pharmaceutical development would be small molecule solid state studies. If you look at what's done on ground today, most of those studies are fully automated. Um, there are two tried and true techniques that the pharmaceutical industry uses, which is melt cool. So if you have a thermally stable API that you can melt past the melting point and then slowly cool down, you can start to look at different crystalline forms of that API and that simple melt cool process. If you don't have a thermally stable API and the more traditional route of looking at polymorph screens or, or crystallization morphology and crystal habit is to do solvent antisolvent, where you'll take that, that molecule up into a solvent, and then you'll add antisolvent to that, that solution to um, precipitate the drug to, to, to stimulate crystallization. Uh, so we are developing both those hardware architectures to fly in a microgravity environment. There will be no mixing. Again, in microgravity, you have diffusion controlled. Um, um, or, or I guess in microgravity, you have <clears throat> diffusion dominate everything that occurs there. And so once a, a sample is uniform, whether it's in a solution or a melted liquid, you'll have complete mixing of that sample just because you're in a microgravity environment. Wow. Okay. So no shakers needed. No mixing whatsoever. <laughs> um, yeah, and I get it. So now it's just uh, we have a... Explain the need for understanding the crystallization. So you've already got a molecule, but obviously some crystals are better than others. Why? Because it greatly affects bioavailability, um, which can have a huge impact on product safety and efficacy in patients. Uh, it can also have a profound impact on the IP landscape. So it can provide uh, protection of your drug as a progresses through the clinic and you get it to commercialization. Uh, it can offer um, avenues into alternate routes of administration as well. Uh, one of the findings on the ISS was a study that was conducted by Merck, where they looked at crystallization of Keytruda, which is the largest oncology drug. Uh, today, it sells over $25 billion annually. Um, unfortunately for Keytruda, it is an IV injectable, so you patients have to go into a hospital setting, and that's primarily due to the particle size distribution that's observed in the terrestrial process. Um, a chemist at Merck called Paul Reichert 
uh, envisioned that if you could look at crystallization of Keytruda in a microgravity environment, a quiescent environment, that it could potentially lead to a different particle size distribution, and it could allow Keytruda to be formulated as a subcutaneous injectable, and that has actually been demonstrated in patent by Mark. Wow. Okay, so yeah, so from their standpoint and a patient standpoint, less volume, presumably, reduce shipping costs, if nothing else. And then from a patient standpoint, not having to go in, sit for an hour, I'm imagining, I don't know, maybe longer to get an IV on some regular basis or go in, get a shot, walk out. Exactly. And if there are other pandemics, and as you could envision, you know, during a pandemic setting, there was, you know, limited access to hospital settings. And so if you can provide therapies that remove the need to have patients go to the hospital, it prevents, you know, lack of, of therapeutic intervention during, during pandemics. Right. And you mentioned uh, semiconductors, fiber optics, pharmaceuticals, because the advantages of those three industries, just for people who haven't imagined it yet, yeah, the advantage. So the primary advantage is those industries are the most conducive to the existing cost structure. So if you look at um, products that are are made on Earth today, you know, pharmaceutics, semiconductors, and and fiber optics are the most expensive materials that are produced on Earth today. Pharmaceuticals being the the top tier. And so if you're going to access an, an expensive market, uh, again, with the cost you know dropping as a function of time, you really want to do it in a setting where you can provide value uh, on earth. And so we have to do that in in certain instances where the, the economies or the unit economics are in our favor. And those are the, the three industries that are, those are best suited for. Right. And then you describe, you know, this three foot cylinder capsule and you know if you've seen the space station it's massive so explain why we're not doing this in the volume of the space station we're going to do it a couple handfuls at a time yeah and i think this is a key differentiator so the iss has been developed really to support space exploration um, it, it was not developed as a nodal point to commercialize or industrialize, you know, the space economy. Um, and so if you look at research that's conducted within the ISS, um, it's really, you know, made in space for use in space. What we're trying to do at Varda is made in space for use on Earth. So exploit this low Earth you know, environment, this low Earth orbit environment for value creating events that can be, you know, um, used, you know, for people that are, are on Earth today, not for, you know, space exploration or, or, you know, astronauts or astronaut maintenance, you know, during these, the, um, during their, their duration in the, the space stations. Uh, as you know, within the pharmaceutical industry as well, the R&D cycle times, they expect kind of fast cycle times because they want to make quick decisions. It's a very uh, dynamic environment with competition popping up all the time. If you try to do studies on the ISS, the, the, the lead time and cadence of those studies is quite long in duration. It can take years, if not decades, to run one study or complete a series of studies to give you the information to really, you know, draw conclusions on, you know, the, the, the initial thesis of that study. The other thing is they are greatly restricted to what you can test. 
And so you can't test small molecules. You can't use um, flammable solvents because astronaut safety, the safety of the International Space Station is first and foremost. And so our vision at VARDA is to externalize all the hazardous processes in a free-flying autonomous fashion. Um, and so that's why we, we feel we're differentiated from the ISS is we can accept hazardous materials. We can accept small molecules that they can't work with within the ISS. And we have the ability to tailor our launch cadence to meet the R&D cycle time needs of the pharmaceutical industry. And so we can complete studies within a six-month duration as opposed to multi-year or decades. Yeah. So, so there's so there's much fascinating, fascinating stuff there. there. The first thing that you mentioned way back at the beginning was that the space station's been up for 40 years. Right? And then... The lead time, my first job interview when I came to California was um, at NASA helping to plan out experiments for the shuttle, which is a job I didn't get, and that's why I'm a podcaster now. But, um, yeah, the, the amount of time and planning and all those things that go on to have humans go up, do experiments in the, sh in the space station, um, lots of training, those missions are planned out long in advance. All those things are interesting. And then, of course, the safety thing makes total sense. And just from a project standpoint, I'm guessing that 40 years ago when they started building the space station, no one was even thinking about are we manufacturing drugs in space. Exactly. It wasn't even on the list. So very cool. All right. Let's talk about uh, logistics. So we were starting to get into that. Your schedule, capacity per launch, and sort of the discipline that you guys have to have because still those launches are planned. They're going whether you're ready or not, right? You got it. Yeah. So our um, launches are tied to the SpaceX Falcon 9 launch sequences. So we are doing ride shares. Um, for 2023, we have two launches scheduled, one that will occur in June, the second will occur in November, and then we have two more scheduled for 2024. Uh, the first launch in June will be our first launch as an organization, so it's really to validate the capsule, validate the hardware, and we are doing some some pharmaceutical research in there as well. So um, the first hardware we developed was a simple melt-cool apparatus. And we developed it, validated it on the ground with a, uh, a problem child that has plagued the pharmaceutical industry for 20 plus years, um, a drug called ritonavir. Uh, ritonavir is an HIV drug that was commercialized by AbbVie, and two years post-commercialization, it was pulled from the market uh, due to crystallization of the drug in the commercial supply. Um, so was, there was an unknown polymorph that popped up in the, the commercial material, and unfortunately, that had a huge impact on the overall efficacy of that drug. So they had to pull the drug from the market, reformulate it, knowing that this new polymorph exists, and then reintroduce it to the market. And so it, it caused to have the over a billion dollars of lost sales. Um, it limited the availability of the drug to patients for a, a couple years as well. Uh, so we looked at that as a perfect, you know, uh, test molecule to, you know, study, you know, on the ground and, and in flight. Uh, and in the hardware development, we were very fortunate uh, to have uh, identified the, the, the first 
polymorph of, of ritonavir in the last 25 years. So the first new form of ritonavir was identified within the walls of Varda through simple hardware developments on the ground. Um, because I think, you know, one thing that our um, work and studies really lended itself to is the lack of innovation that has occurred in small molecule solid state studies. Um, for us, just simply innovating on the hardware and testing a very well-studied molecule, we were able to stumble across a new polymorph. So we're extremely excited about the prospects of what we're going to find when we start to test and, and evaluate these materials in a microgravity environment. Uh, but tied to our, our launch sequence, so first launch is set up in, in June of this year, where we'll be testing ritonavir in a melt-cool setting, and then November of this year, uh, we are hoping to fly our first pharmaceutical project. Wow. I want to say I've never learned so much about pharma development on any episode as this one, just based on this conversation. And going back to the ritonavir, you know, I didn't even think about after the drug's been formulated, it sounds like what the problem you described is essentially going bad on the shelf. Like That's exactly it. So, um, you know, what happens is you do an extensive polymorph screening when you have an interesting drug substance in your, your development cycle. Um, that's primarily so you can understand how to control that from a quality perspective. Um, and in that screening, you think you can you know, identify everything that you, you're going to know, you know, moving forward. Unfortunately, there are late forming polymorphs that can pop up at any, at any stage that can have deleterious impacts on the performance of that drug and potentially, you know, result in a recall, which was experienced with the, the ritonavir. Wow. That's amazing. All right. So last question, what does the future look like in terms of factories in space? At first I thought, well, how much capacity can there be? But then you think about the volume of space way exceeds the volume of the land surface of the earth. Yeah. You're going to get sort of ridiculous about it, but. Yeah. So how we are approaching it again, you know, first and foremost for the, for the next four to five years, you know, the foreseeable future we're focused on made in space for use on earth. Um, I think as these next generation space stations come online, Axiom will replace the ISS by 2030. Um, there's a few other space stations that are coming online as well with the, um, you know, Starship coming online at SpaceX, which will greatly increase the potential cadence going up into low Earth orbit. We feel that you know we'll we'll stick to our existing strategy, where we'll have you know multiple launches per year to support the pharmaceutical clients and their needs. Uh, but in the course of four to six years from now, we do envision the formation of dedicated space factories, primarily again for. Uh, developing processes that were developed that were discovered in space, but for some reason could not be translated to production on Earth. So these are, are still microgravity processes made in space, produced in space for use on Earth. And then the next wave will be using those factories for made in space for use in space, you know, as that, you know, economy and the ecosystem increases as the number of humans and their presence in orbit or on the moon or in Mars increases, there really is going to be a need to really drive these externalization of factories away from Earth into orbital settings to have readily or to have easy access to the astronauts as they're going on these, you know, interplanetary exploratory missions. Awesome. 
this is uh this has been a treat this is, might be the um maybe the best week in podcasting i've ever had in terms of epic projects last friday i interviewed somebody in this episode will have come out just before yours on the de-extinction of the woolly mammoth so two things that require huge vision one sort of going back in time and another one going way forward in time it's just amazing so mark herbert thank you so much for sharing all that with me today my pleasure chris anytime Swiftin, uh Tanguality base here the eagle has landed Okay, friends, thanks for putting up with my uh, little trip down memory lane here. Like every kid my age, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon on my ninth birthday, and I remember exactly where I was that day, although he landed at 2 in the morning. I remember how I spent that day. Hey, if you like the podcast, we're doing all kinds of stuff that touches on life sciences, artificial intelligence, space exploration. You've probably heard the episode, I hope, on the extinction of the woolly mammoth and more great stuff to come. So if you like it, you probably know someone else who likes it as well or who would like it. And uh, if you'd share it with them, I would be very grateful to you for that. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Thanks and bye-bye.